tonight on The Readout. And I have to applaud um, District Attorney Bragg for giving Donald the opportunity to come in and to tell his story. Now, knowing Donald as well as I do, understand that he doesn't tell the truth. It's one thing to turn around and to lie on your untruth social. It's another thing to turn around and lie before a grand jury. Which so I don't suspect that he's going to be coming. After decades of screwing over creditors and employees and lawyers and the American people, how rich would it be if an extramarital affair with a porn actress is what finally sinks Donald Trump? Also tonight, Leonard Leo played a large role in pushing the courts to the far right. Now he thinks the rest of American society needs a hard right turn. But he has a fundamental misunderstanding of why the right is losing the culture wars. And tonight's state of disunion, how political power is being wielded in states with one party control. In Tennessee, Republicans are using it like a club and attacking the LGBTQ community. But it's a much different story in Democratic controlled Michigan. And we begin tonight with a saga of Stor- with the saga of Stormy Daniels, a story that started a long time ago in 20, 2006, to be exact. It was the year adult film actress Daniels, whose legal name is Stephanie Clifford, said she met Donald Trump at a celebrity golf tournament and that the two allegedly began an affair. Trump was married to Melania by then. Daniels was 27 years old at the time and Trump was 60 There had been whispers of the affair for a while. Remember, Trump was a real estate mogul and tabloid darling back then. But what was once gossipy tea became a problem, a huge problem, when Trump, the apprentice star, became Trump, the American president. In 2018, the Wall Street Journal reported that longtime Trump fixer Michael Cohen had arranged a $130,000 payment before the 2016 election as part of an agreement that precluded Daniels from publicly discussing her sexual encounters with Trump. Hush payoffs were also used to silence former Playboy model Karen McDougal, another one of Trump's alleged mistresses. Is it illegal? To pay off an ex-girlfriend, does it mean you cannot be president? No, of course not. But Daniels was paid during Trump's presidential run and just one month before Election Day, making the payments a campaign finance violation, which, of course, was a big problem, too, for Michael Cohen. According to the journal sources, it was he who arranged the payment to Daniels in October 2016 after her lawyer negotiated the non-disclosure agreement with Cohen. Cohen was given a three-year prison sentence after pleading guilty to crimes that included facilitating those payments, as well as other financial crimes. But according to accounts, Trump himself was involved directly in each deal, with Trump reportedly telling Cohen to get it done. Trump denies all of this, of course, a rebuttal that means nothing, especially given what Cohen testified to before Congress, before entering prison. Mr. Trump is a con man. He asked me to pay off an adult film star with whom he had an affair. This was days before the election that Mr. Trump was going to pay the $130,000. In the office with me was Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. He acknowledged to Alan that he was going to pay the $130,000 and that Alan and I should go back to his office and figure out how to do it. Michael Cohen had gone from Trump's fixer to Trump's enemy. And Stormy Daniels may still be the one to take Trump down. 
because last night was one of those blockbuster breaking news kind of nights that renew your faith in karma. The New York Times reported that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office recently signaled to Trump's lawyers that he could face criminal charges for his role in paying Daniels to keep things under wraps. If those charges are made, it would be the first indictment of a former U.S. president. It's kind of bonkers when you think about it. How one of the earliest probes against Trump is nearing its final stages. But make no mistake, Trump's attorneys are working hard to scrape the dirt off of Teflon Don. Late today, NBC News reported that the attorneys representing Trump in this case are meeting Trump in Florida to discuss an exit strategy. Trump attorney Joe Tecapina told NBC News they have no plans on meeting with the Manhattan DA's office and insist that Trump is the victim of extortion. Also today, Trump loyalist turned nemesis Michael Cohen made his 20th and final appearance with Manhattan prosecutors. The seven-hour meeting was in preparation for his grand jury appearance, which will be Monday at 2 p.m. Joining me now is Harry Littman, former deputy assistant attorney general, senior legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times and host of the Talking Feds podcast, along with Nick Ackerman, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and former assistant special Watergate prosecutor. Harry Littman, I do want to start with you because, you know, here's the question, I guess, the easiest question, because Donald Trump has used a lot of legal maneuvers to get out of a lot of things. He's ignored subpoenas. He's gotten away with a lot over the course of his life. Is there some way that his attorney, Joe Tacopina, could somehow create an exit strategy that would avoid prosecution? Is it too late without going and testifying before this grand jury to somehow convince the grand jury or the prosecutor to stand down? Even if he goes to testify, Joy, it's too late. They've already made the decision, and it would just be a kind of a suicide mission where he would try his best. Very few defendants would take that opportunity, and Donald Trump would not be one of them. You know, stranger things have, have happened, but I'm confident in saying an indictment is coming and soon. I'm, I don't believe it when you, when they say the Trump lawyers won't try to talk. No, no chance Trump goes in to testify. The Trump lawyers may still try to meet to talk brag out of it. That could take a week or two. Otherwise, this and the other big signal, as you just reported, Cohen testifying on Monday, that's that's the final step. And then you give Trump the chance. He won't take it. It is a hundred times out of a hundred, a sign that an indictment is coming next. Wow. Okay. Well, that is very definitive. <laughs> uh, Nick Ackerman, you know, the only other time, uh, wow, that, you know, that anything close to this has happened, obviously, is Richard Nixon's attorney general, Sparrow Agnew, um, who resigned as a result of being indicted. I think it was tax uh, related um, offenses. But that's the only other time, you know, but that was a very different atmosphere. I mean, Nixon was like a different version of Trump, but, you know, he didn't have a cult, you know. So, I mean, can you just talk about sort of the, the political atmospheres then and, and now and how how you think how, how much would this explode the universe if this indictment happened, as it seems to me, Harry Lippman said it's gonna. Well, I think it is. I think Harry's absolutely correct that there will be an indictment here. Um, I mean, if you compare this to Watergate, um, don't forget, Richard Nixon was about to be impeached. He was impeached. He would have been removed by the Senate. Um, we basically held back. We didn't indict um, because of that, we ba basically um, deferred to the Congress on impeachment process. Um, but here, I think what's going to happen is going to be much more explosive politically. Uh, it's going to completely change the game. 
because once Trump is out of been indicted, I don't care what he says about still running for president. Being under a indictment is not a positive resume builder. Uh, and you're going to find that other people who've been holding back, uh, most notably Vice President Pence um, and uh, Mr. Pompeo and others, are suddenly going to dr- jump into the race because they're going to feel a lot more confident um, that they've got a chance. Because I think at that point, what U.S. senators, what congressmen are going to want to run for reelection in 2024 with the head of the ticket under indictment? I mean, it's not only unprecedented, but politically, it's going to be disastrous um, for the rest of the ticket, right down to dog catcher. So that is going to make a big difference. And I think the person who may benefit the most out of this is Vice President Pence. Uh, if you look at modern history, it's been the vice president who's gotten the nomination, whether it was Eisenhower, Nixon, Johnson, uh, Humphrey, um, Reagan, uh, Bush. Uh, Clinton, Gore, and of course now President Biden. So I think it's really going to mix up the entire political world uh, once this happens. Wow. And, and just to be clear, the the, the OLC type memo that says you can't indict a sitting president, if, if, if he then gets indicted at the state level inside the DOJ, I guess I'll ask both of you this question. How does the DOJ then look at that? Because there are all these other things like that a lot of people would argue are more important. You know, there is the January 6th case, Harry. There is uh, the case that's in Georgia about interfering with Georgia's election. Uh, there's obviously the financial crimes case um, that you could still see Tish James, Tish James looking at in New York. But I mean, some of these bigger cases, especially the Jack Smith investigation, it, as a former federal prosecutor, what happens with those cases if he's indicted in the state of New York? Okay, first, all true. I do want to say to Nick's point, you know, there we should we should have ec- our expectations a little bit tempered because a lot's going to happen after an indictment here, and it will be months, maybe up to a year of just pretrial stuff. And second, while that is the recent history, uh, Trump is certainly suggesting bring it on, and this this will only inflame his his supporters more. The short answer to what happens with Smith and DOJ uh, is nothing. They go on their same track and their road. There is there is no. Uh, I think I think it maybe affects Fulton County, but I don't see it affecting DOJ. And a, and an important point to to know: not only does the OLC memo not apply, neither, of course, is any is a, is a pardon possible because it's right. a state offense. A state so that matter. magic kryptonite power is is yeah. gone. Let me just stay with you for just a second, Harry, because the things that people have brought up as a uh, impediments to this kind of a prosecution, number one, Michael Cohen, um, they're saying, well, they'll they'll try to impeach his credibility. There were some tax issues that he was also convicted for some, you know, evading taxes on on a couple million, a few million dollars in income um, and some other things like that, including this campaign finance violation. But I, I would note that he's not been wrong yet. Let me just play a quick montage. These are things that Michael Cohen has said that have all proved to be true. Take a look. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. He is a racist. He is a con man. And he is a cheat. Given my experience working for Mr. Trump, 
I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. Show me the lie. Like, I mean, he's been right, right and right again. He's been unassailable as a witness before Congress. Everything he said has been true. You know, I mean, if you have people like me on the jury, I'd be like, yeah, I believe him. Do you think they could impeach him despite that? Well, look, there'll be things to say, but he won't be the first star witness that has a criminal record, for example. And I think one of the number uh, one of the most important things that Bragg's been trying to do over the last few months is figure out how to bolster his credibility. And last week we had Hope Hicks. We've had Kellyanne Conway. They're connected in important junctures, as Cohen has testified. I think that's what they're doing there. And Bragg, before he brings an indictment and he's decided to, has concluded he's got enough to bolster uh, Cohen credibility. Of course, they'll come after him at trial, but he but they'll be he won't be acting alone. And not just him, paper record of the mischaracterization of the income. And then Kellyanne Conway, Hope Hicks, maybe others to bolster important points. And as you as you say, he certainly hasn't been been wrong uh, in recent uh, history. He's bad at kind of a thousand, I would have to say. And uh, Nick, the other piece here is that we do have this new piece of information that there may be more charges against Weisselman, who obviously, you know, handled Trump's money. And that maybe the, the idea of perhaps bringing more charges on him would be to pressure um, him, Alvin Bragg, uh, to pressure Weisselman to cooperate. If that were to happen, that would be very bad news for Trump, I'm assuming. Yeah, I, I think what's going to happen here is, I mean, we're all assuming that this indictment that's about to come down is just going to relate to the business with Stormy Daniels. Um, I don't think we should assume that. I mean, if they really want to corroborate um, Michael Cohen and really show the entire picture, which has come out in the course of the attorney general's investigation and the civil trial, where pretty much it's shown that Donald Trump has lied about everything in his records. That I think what's going to happen here is they may combine more with this indictment. It may not just be Donald Trump. It may be Weisselberg on this count. It also could be other activities that relate to the operation of the Trump organization. I mean, if the DA is really smart, they'll cherry pick the two or three best lies they've got in the bank records and the company records, and they'll use those as the basis for other violations so that they can put it all together and show a jury that what this guy has done is really corrupted his entire company, corrupted the businesses he's dealt with and has lied to banks uh, and others in order to get his way, including uh, the tax authorities, which I think is another big part of this indictment. it's, it's historic stuff. Uh, and uh, it hasn't happened before. So, you know, it's a huge story. And uh, wow, Donald Trump's luck might be running out. Uh, Harry Littman and Nick Ackerman, quite definitive gentlemen. Thank you both very much. Happy Friday. Thank you. And Thanks, don't Nick. miss. Thank you. And don't miss Reverend Al Sharpton's exclusive interview with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg on tomorrow's Politics Nation. That should be very interesting at 5 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. OK, up next on the readout inside the shadowy group that helped pack the Supreme Court with religious conservatives, which is now vowing to crush liberal initiatives across the U.S. The readout continues after this. If you want to understand how Republicans think the left works, a hypothetical provided by conservative activist Evan Baer explains it perfectly. Quoth Mr. Baer, 
Imagine a group of four people sitting at the Harvard Club for lunch in midtown Manhattan, a billionaire hedge funder, a film producer, a Harvard professor, and a New York Times writer. Sounds like the start of like an unfunny joke, right? The billionaire says, wouldn't it be cool if middle school kids had free access to sex change therapy paid for by the federal government? Well, the filmmaker says, I'd love to do a documentary on that. It'll be a major motion film. The Harvard professor says, we can do studies on that to say it's absolutely biologically sound and safe. And the New York Times person says, I'll profile people who feel trapped in the wrong gender. After a single lunch, Bear concluded, elite liberals can put different kinds of capital together and go out into the world and basically wreck shop. <laughs> okay, what? Okay, that's, that's not how anything works. It's actually so unintentionally funny, it is hard to believe that this guy is serious. Who does he think hangs out at the Harvard Club? Because I can promise you there are far more Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz's dining there than liberals. And uh, literally, nobody's conspiring to hand out sex change therapy to children like Halloween candy. That's just actually dumb. But that's the Republicans' problem in a nutshell. They, they do not get how actual things like progressive evolution in society work. And this is why they're losing the culture wars. They literally just don't understand modern culture. But just because they're losing, embarrassingly, does not mean they are not trying. Enter Leonard Leo. You might recall, we have talked about him on this show before. He was Trump's judge whisperer from the right-wing Federalist Society. He's essentially the reason for the Supreme Court's right-wing supermajority. And his latest venture is backing a group called the Teneo Network that aims to replicate what Leo did to the courts in every aspect of American life. New reporting from ProPublica says Leo told potential donors in a private video that he plans to crush liberal dominance on Wall Street, in Silicon Valley, and in books, schools, and sports, and Hollywood, a federalist society for everything. This is how the right thinks that they can take the culture back. And as ridiculous as it sounds, they have a lot of money and a lot of Republican heavy hitters on board. Joining me now is ProPublica's Andrea Bernstein, one of the reporters who broke that story, along with Ture, host of Masters of the Game, on the Grio uh, and my friend. Thank you all for being here. Uh, uh, let me start with you, Ms. Bernstein. Let me play a quick soundbite of Leonard Leo so that people can kind of hear him talk. Here he is. I spent close to 30 years, if, if not more, helping to build the conservative legal movement. And at some point or another, you know, I just said to myself, well, if this can work for law, why can't it work for lots of other areas of American culture and American life where things are really messed up right now. Wokeism in the corporate environment, in the educational environment, one-sided journalism, entertainment that's really corrupting our youth. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm sorry, what, what makes th that guy think that he can change the culture and sports and Hollywood, etc.? Well, good evening, Joy. It's great to be back with you. I mean, I think what we at ProPublica and, and Documented were interested with Taneo is that Leonard Leo has had an enormous success as uh, creating networks at the Federalist Society. He created pipelines of young lawyers who became judges. Some of them went to the Supreme Court. Others of them argue cases before the Supreme Court, and it has had remarkable success. He is, uh, when we have done our reporting, the one person that people say is most responsible for the six to three supermajority in the U.S. Supreme Court that is making all kinds of decisions. He also recently, as we reported last summer, uh, was given uh, one control of $1.6 billion, which is the biggest political donation in U.S. history. 
And this is someone that needs to be taken seriously because he's someone who started 30 years ago with the idea that uh, conservatives were shut out of the courts and, and very methodically worked to change that and has had great success. So he is now backing this new venture, which has many, many influential members, U.S. senators, uh, there are staffers to various state officials, uh, there are powerful people in media, judges, and the idea is to create a pipeline for conservative talent, as they see it, to uh, feed into these networks and to gain power. And, you know, they very much feel like they are losing the culture wars and they want to win the culture wars. I think, you know, if you look around the country, though, some of the causes they support are achieving great success. If you look, for example, at a package of legislation that was recently introduced in, in Florida. So uh, it's mm -hmm. something that, you know, we sort of looked at and thought this is something that deserves to be understood and, and you know, taken seriously. I mean, and the thing is, I, I will point out to Ray to bring you into this, though. I look at the group of people, uh, Evan Bayer, who's a Teneo co-founder, who says that they need to take back the culture from this le right wing, this left wing elite. Um, and he did this. He's the one who told the story about the Harvard Club. He graduated from Princeton, Yale and Harvard. Uh, the group that are members of Teneo include um, aides to Ron DeSantis, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, um, the people who are involved in it. Here are some of the Republicans. Josh Hawley, Stanford, Yale, Elise Stefanik, Harvard, Ted Cruz, Harvard, Princeton, J.D. Vance, Yale, Glenn Youngkin, Harvard, Tom Cotton, Harvard, Ron DeSantis, Harvard, Yale. Um, that is the elite. It, it, it strikes me that si saying they're going to take back the world or the country from the woke elite, who do they mean? Well, you let's talk about one thing first off, right? The culture war is happening because the right doesn't want to talk about policy. They don't want to talk about the economy. They don't want to talk about the real things that Americans need because they have no policies to address those things. So they talk about the culture war and get people ex excited about trans women going into bathrooms and black people taking your jobs and immigrants breaking into your house. And rather than having to talk about actual economic, real serious political issues. Um, you know, the thing with the Harvard Club story that you brought up is it's actually, I believe that they would see the world that way because that is how they have constructed the world of alternate facts that they live in. That people like Charles Koch are paying certain scientists to come up with phony uh, studies, that they are creating media figures like Sean Hannity, who go on television and say things that they know are not true. And so they construct this worldview that a few million people in America actually believe in. The left does not work that way. We do not sit down at a table with media, Harvard, Hollywood, and go, let's come up with some nutball idea that will just own the right and make them so mad that no. so much of what they to do is about owning the left and making us angry and creating ideas that distract from the actual issues like the economy and get us focused on, oh, my God, there's a child in Alabama who goes to school saying they're a cat and they have to give the kitty litter. For the, I mean, like the, the conversation they want is is ridiculous. And this is part of that. Well, I mean, the thing is, Andrew, what 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 it, what it what strikes me is that 
if I had a billion dollars, you know, I'm not sure that this is what they would do with it. It used to be that think tanks on the right were like, let's come up with some economic policies. This is what we think we should do about the deficit. This strikes me as all sort of social cultural tinkering that they want to do. But the things that have been successful, to your point, have been things that only animate the same base that already votes Republican. The people who care about who's in the bathroom is already, are already voting Republican. The people who want to ban books by Black and LGBTQ people already voting Republican. None of this is persuasive. The things they try to do to persuade is coming up with like their own animated. Can I show this? Daily Wire is coming up with their own. They think, well, the cartoons are too liberal. So they created something called Chip Chilla (laughs) with an A at the end. Chip Chilla. And they're like, that's going to rival the woke cartoon. See, like it's like they don't understand the actual culture. But the things they do are only designed to appeal to their own base already. Who is it they think they're bringing over with this Taneo thing? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things about creating a power network like this is, you know, just look at the U.S. Supreme Court. One of the, uh, you know, sort of very hot topics that's coming up in you know, and and has been recently decided in many cases is voting rights, right? So if you restrict voting rights, then you're just not necessarily talking about, you know, what the majority wants, you're talking about power. And I think that's why it's worth, you know, taking a group like this seriously, because, you know, what they want is to have people leading all kinds of institutions in American life. Now, you know, sort of all of culture is perhaps a you know, bigger target than just the courts. But, uh, you know, here is Leonard Hill, someone who had success with the courts, but really shaping them the way he wanted. So the idea that they're sort of, you know, uh, not to be taken seriously because they're sort of misapprehending perhaps the left. No, I'm not saying not uh, to take them seriously. Well, no, yeah, no, we're out of time. I'm trying to, I'm sorry, I'm maturing, I have to wrap, but I'm, I'm not saying take them seriously. I'm saying that it is, it is, I think what they're doing is doing it in an unserious way. The way they've taken the courts is they've gotten the exact same people to continue to vote Republican and to vote for Republicans who will then put in right-wing Supreme Court justice. It is extremely dangerous. So I'm not saying it isn't dangerous. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting. It's not persuading. It's just getting the same people to vote for more Republicans they can take over more courts. Uh, It's an interesting thing. Uh, Andrew Bernstein, thank you very much. Tere, thank you very much. Sorry, we're out of time. Uh, Coming up, who won the week is still ahead. But first, tonight's State of Disunion, I will lay out a side-by-side illustration of what it really means to be living in a Republican-led state. This is the whole point we're just talking about versus a Democratic-led state in 2023, because it's all about who you vote for and who's running your state, who's running your courts. We'll be right back. In tonight's State of Disunion, I want to show you what one party control looks like in a red state and in a blue state. Let's start in Tennessee, where the Republican Party controls the offices of governor, secretary of state, attorney general, and both chambers of the legislature. And let's zoom in on Nashville, a blue oasis in a sea of red and the reigning bachelorette capital of the United States. Ladies are flocking to Tennessee in droves and bringing their dollars to local businesses in the city. One of the industries that has benefited from this bachelorette boom includes the bars and restaurants that host drag shows. They are so popular that one of Nashville's business owners testified before the state legislature that drag shows at his club had contributed more than $13 million to the state in the form of sales and liquor taxes. Last week, Governor Bill Lee decided that Tennessee would become the first state to ban drag shows, foregoing the big bucks that they bring to his state coffers. 
another sinister aspect of the law that is so constitutionally vague that it's not quite clear what falls under the jurisdiction of the ban, which you could argue is the goal because it paralyzes business owners, performers, and others because they aren't sure what would even happen to them. This was passed alongside separate legislation that bans transgender minors in Tennessee from receiving gender-affirming care, like puberty blockers, hormones, and surgery. Now, it is weird for a party that screams about big government to use really, really big government to police their state. Unsurprisingly, the overreach does not stop there. The Tennessee House just passed a bill that would allow county clerks and officials to deny marriage licenses based on their personal religious beliefs. Which is an interesting development, because I seem to remember a bunch of Republicans, including Florida Senator Marco Rubio, assuring the American public that we didn't need a federal law to protect same-sex marriages because it was a waste of our time on a non-issue. He and both of Tennessee's senators, Bill Haggerty and Marsha Blackburn, chose not to protect same-sex marriages when they had the chance. While Tennessee Republicans are busy taking things away from people, Democrats in Michigan are full steam ahead with a raft of legislation that is doing the opposite. Democrats who control all three branches of government are getting things done. Wednesday, they pressed ahead with repealing anti-union laws, expanding background checks for guns, enshrining protections for LGBTQ people into law, and looking to repeal, once and for all, the state's 19th century era abortion ban that is unenforceable but still on the books. Michigan isn't the only one-party state in the union fighting back against mega-brokeism. California Governor Gavin Newsom told Walgreens that his state would no longer be doing business with them or any company that cowers to the extremists. His announcement came after Walgreens announced that they would stop selling abortion medication in states where their Republican attorney generals, where Republican attorney generals objected, including some states where abortion is still legal. This is nothing to scoff at, folks. Newsom is at the helm of the world's fourth largest economy. While these states are leading with inclusivity, Republican wannabe presidents are leading with exclusivity. Stay tuned after the break to hear how they think picking on people is a winning strategy. The 800-pound gorilla of Florida politics uh, came out and fought us when we were trying to protect kids uh, from, from the gender ideology. We run the state of Florida. We don't subcontract out leadership to a woke company based in California in the state of Florida. Because woke ideology has infected so many institutions, uh, if you really want to protect the freedom of your folks, you got to be willing to defend them. You can't just say, let it go, because then we're going to be living under an oppressive wokeocracy. Oh, Jesus, wokeocracy. Uh, it hurts. Uh, Ron DeSantis, <laughs> there he is, putting his war on woke, a.k.a. black and LGBTQ folks, front and center as he continues his unofficial 2024 presidential campaign launch today in Iowa. He is not formally running yet, but we all know he is. And according to The Washington Post, he is telling people privately that he intends to. His event today was officially to promote his poorly reviewed memoir. But, you know, he proved that just like Donald Trump, racism and cruelty are his only political positions. I'm sick of elites imposing their vision on open borders on you and on us with them not having to face the consequences of it. So we thought it was worth it to send 50 illegals to Martha's Vineyard. That was his biggest applause line. Meanwhile, another Republican governor who's put an anti-LGBTQ and anti-Black, anti-black policies at the center of his potential 2024 run, Virginia's so-called 
moderate Glenn Youngkin tried to defend his anti-transgender policies in a town hall last night. Look at me. I am a transgender man. Do you really think that the girls in my high school would feel comfortable sharing a restroom with me? Yep. So first of all, Nico, thank you for again asking the question and being here tonight and uh, engaging in this important discussion. What's most important is that we try very hard to accommodate students. That's why I have said many, many times, we just need extra bathrooms in schools. We need gender neutral bathrooms. And so people can use a bathroom that they, in fact, are comfortable with. Joining me now is Adrian Shropshire, executive director of Black Pack, and Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst. Uh, Susan, my friend. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I am actually kind of amazed at what Republican strategists, consultants, and base voters think is a good candidate. I, I'm just being real. I mean, I get Trump because he's a celebrity and they're like, he's on TV. Uh, Ron DeSantis's personality it, is like nails on a chalkboard to me. He just says woke 477 times in a sentence. He just says woke, wokeism, woke thing, woke mob, woke mafia, woke, 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 woke. He just keeps saying it over and over and over again. Here's the polling. 56% in America says woke means to be informed, educated, and aware of social injustices. 51% say woke means being aware of social injustice and not being overly politically correct. 72% support teaching the ongoing effects of slavery and racism in the United States. 76 oppose efforts by state governments to ban certain books and school classrooms and libraries. This doesn't even poll well. Who is his base? Um, people who... Other than TV commentators <laughs> who seem to love him. Yeah, no, it's, it's people who need an us versus them fight, who are resentful. But here's the thing, Joy. The candidates that the Republican base is putting up, the candidates that they like, are candidates that lose. These are losing <laughs> platforms. So what you what I hear is the the base saying we don't care if we win. We're just going we want someone who's going to be our voice because we've been in the minority so long now there's someone to yell and scream for me. Except you know what people in politics like donors and establishment people and people who were in political groups like to do? They like to win. win. Yeah. They like win. And they know this is not the way you do it. You know, Adrian, I, I think that they're, the way that the sort of political media zeitgeist works is they say, uh, Donald Trump is losing, therefore Ron DeSantis is the new candidate, we go with him. And then they don't really analyze it any further. There is no difference between the two of them other than Donald Trump has a personality, <laughs> you know, and has some wit and has a smile on his face. And it's some, this guy just seems like just sort of a curmudgeonly anti-black uh, and anti-LGBTQ person. And the, the, the reason he won so overwhelmingly in Florida, let's be clear, is about 1.3 million people stayed home and didn't bother to vote. Apathy put him in not excitement. And somehow people have decided that that needs that will translate outside of Florida, where people just literally just are less non-voters. I, I mean, is it, so give me your perspective here. Will he get two percent of the African-American voter? Three, because African-Americans can see and have eyes and can hear. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you can say or use the word woke as a slur as much as you want to, I guess. Um, but clearly it does not play uh, outside of uh, of the base that he is playing to. I mean, 
Ron DeSantis has decided uh, that the winning strategy for him is one that's as old as the country, quite frankly, which is to uh, pick a marginalized community, demonize them, right? In this case, black people and the LGBT community, um, and use that as a way to consolidate your base around a single enemy, right? Um, Youngkin did the same thing when he ran in 2021, right? Okay. Rallying his base around um, uh, CRT and book banning and um, eliminating any subject matter that had anything to do with the black experience um, in America, right? And so that is what they've decided as a winning strategy. The poll that you just showed clearly says that that is not, um, that Americans reject um, this kind of politics. And frankly, the last three election cycles, um, ought to tell them that this does not play outside. And it certainly does not play with black people. So to be clear, right, there's no, as we, as we continue to say, this is not a play to win black people. This is a play to mobilize the base, right, and maybe demoralize some black folks, right, with the policies that we're seeing both of these governors implement, maybe demoralize yeah. some black folks, keep them home. But it's absolutely not about winning over black people. Oh, absolutely. Oh, no. In Florida, you know, Ron DeSantis just arrested a bunch of black people and made it very public that he did it. And that was to demoralize black people. But it, it is interesting to me, um, because as you said, Susan Del Percio, the game in politics is supposed to be to win. But somebody even like uh, a, a Glenn Youngkin, you know, this is some who comes from like a you know sort of hyper capitalist background? You have Joe Biden sitting on three hundred plus thousand jobs created in the last month, sitting on an economy that is growing, three point six percent unemployment. Another really good economic report for him this year. Uh, but now even people on Fox uh, saying, you know what, we may not get the recession that they were hoping for. So he's sitting on an economy that's growing. He's pumping money into rural red areas to try to lure away some white working class and brown and black uh, and Asian American working class voters all over the country. And the answer that Republican politicians that are running for president seem to have is attacking trans people, which younger voters under 30 means they're going to lose them in a landslide. Younger voters are not playing that game. If, you're, if your game is to attack trans people, what voters under 30 are you getting? You're going to lose even white young voters under 30 that way. Yeah, you get the results of 2022, where we saw a tremendous amount of younger voters turn out to vote in actually in record numbers. The the base right now, and I just like to go to DeSantis again for a minute, because I don't think he's all of that. I agree with you. He's really just Trump without the personality. But what's worse is that he's been so insulated during his four years as governor. He has not done a major news interview other than with Fox News. Um, or some local conservative outlets, he hasn't been going through the hard questioning. And I think when he has to answer questions beyond define woke and what's your policy, and he won't. they are going to yeah. come crashing down on his head because right now you're absolutely right. Joe Biden, you may not even like all of his policies, but he's delivering for the American public. These guys are just trying to divide the American public. Yeah, I mean, you, he's going to have something to run on. You know, I mean, people may not be, you know, not all Democrats are thrilled he's going to run, Adrian, but he will actually have content to run on. One would think in a country that's got an epidemic of gun violence, uh, child labor happening. We just found out that the governor of Arkansas signed a bill to make it easier for companies in her state, and they've been busted already, meatpacking companies hiring child labor. She signed a bill to make that easier. 
I I fail to understand why people even vote for people like this. They do in these red states. But when you take that that show on the road, the rest of the country is horrified. Yeah, you know, I just think that you have a bunch of candidates on the Republican side who look back at Donald Trump's 2016 run and believe that that's just the path to victory Um, and haven't quite caught up to the reality. Again, like the last three election cycles should tell you that none of this works. Division and uh, grievance and, um, you know, the the, all all the the buzzwords, right, that you want to come up with, they just don't work. Um, And I think that they haven't quite caught up with that, but fundamentally believe um, that all you have to do is be mean and hateful and organize a, 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 a increasingly yeah. tiny base of people, and somehow that's going to propel you to victory. It, it's the same. It's the it's the Fox News strategy. Just keep them there. But it's the same people. You need more people. It's it's a, it's supposed to be addition. Okay, Adrian and Susan are going to stick around because they're going to help us answer. We need a break, so we're going to answer the burning, all important question of who won the week. That is next. Stay with us. Well, we made it to another end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Aha. Who won the week? Back with me are Adrian Shropshire and Susan Del Percio. Uh, Adrian, I'm going to go with you first. Who won the week? So I'm going to say that Representative Stacey Plaskett won the week um, for how she was battling inside the clown show um, that (laughs) is the subcommittee on uh, weaponizing the federal government, just swatting away all manner of foolishness, not allowing anyone um, to promote propaganda. Yes, she did her thing. She did her thing. Susan Del Percio, who won the week? Our friend and former colleague, Casey Hunt. She was in labor for 13 minutes and delivered uh-huh. her baby with her husband on the bathroom floor before the paramedics get there. Wow. She is like super- Have, she's a, Well, having had three humans, 13-minute uh, labor is that kind of my kind of labor. Who won the week? Tucker Carlson. But not this week's Tucker Carlson. 2009 Tucker Carlson. Here he is. If you create a news organization whose primary objective is not to deliver accurate news, you will fail. For once, I agree with Tucker. 2009 Tucker won the week. Adrian Shropshire, Susan Del Percio, thank you. That's 9-3 down. 